we need to acknowledge that hard work is a godly principle. And the way in which we excel in any area of life is to give ourselves to the task over and over and over again. And we as Christians are called to be excellent people. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part 12 of Skillful Living, Introducing Proverbs, the final of this 12-part series from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text is chapter 6, verses 1 through 19 of this Spirit-inspired Old Testament book of Proverbs. Pastor Paul has subtitled the last three parts of his series as Finding Friends Among Fools, an odd, albeit realistic, title. As we go back to earlier parts of this series covering Proverbs chapter 9, we saw that Lady Wisdom was in hard competition with the Woman of Folly for attendees to her feast invitation. Folly is popular, leading to more foolish decisions. And we see all around us many, many takers of the Woman of Folly's invitations. Verse 15 of today's chapter 6 reads, Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. He will be broken without healing. He's describing the plight of a fool. Here now part 12, the conclusion of our series, Skillful Living, Introducing Proverbs. Of all the things that you would be tempted to, to bypass or to streamline or to shortcut in your life, don't let relationships be one of them. The principle is so simple and yet it can be so hard to simply befriend your friends. Now, one objection would be, it's a lot of people. There's a lot of people that the Lord has put in my life in different ways. And you know what? I've got a whole lot of stuff going on in my life, responsibilities that I have to give my time to, and and I understand that. And so what we get in the second scenario, verses 6 through 11, is actually a point of priority. When you think through who is it that you're going to pursue for friendship, specifically from the perspective of being influenced, When you think through the question of who is it that's going to influence me in my life, this second scenario gives us the principle that I've called pursue the diligent. Befriend your friends and pursue the diligent. Now, this is perhaps the most well-known portion of this chapter, maybe even in the whole book of Proverbs. Go to the ant, O sluggard. We know that admonition well. Solomon is rebuking the lazy man, the idle man, the work-shy man, and it's curious that he rebukes him with the ant, the positive example of the ant. He doesn't go to the workhorse. He doesn't go to the industrious beaver. He doesn't even go to the magisterial eagle. He goes to the tiny, teeny, often overlooked ant. What does Solomon say about the ant? Well, he doesn't say, consider the ant for she is numerous, Did you know that there are over 12,000 species of ants in the world? He does not say, consider the ant for she is strong. Did you know that the ant can lift 20 times its own body weight? But he neglects to mention that. He doesn't say that the ant is productive. In a very literal sense, the queen ant in her lifetime will have millions of babies. But he neglects to mention that. He doesn't say, consider the ant for she is very loyal. 
Did you know that after the queen ant dies, the rest of the colony will die with her? Solomon doesn't even say, consider the ant, for she is troublesome. Did you know that the ants are the leading cause of traffic light shorts in the state of Texas? But Solomon doesn't mention that. And I think that's an oversight on his part. There is one thing that Solomon gives us. He says, consider the ant, yes, because she works hard, but look specifically, he says, consider her because there is an absence of leadership and yet she works. Verse seven, without having any chief, officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and she gathers her food in the harvest. Now, to be clear, there is a social structure to an ant colony. Scientists have studied it and they see that they have different roles. There's no one ant telling every other ant what it is to do that day. The ant, in a fascinating way, wakes up and goes to work and there's nobody telling the ant what to do. The ant, in a fascinating way, wakes up and goes to work and there's nobody telling the ant what to do. The ant, in a fascinating way, seems to have some kind of instinctive God-given wisdom, you might say. The ant is an initiator. The ant is its own leader. The ant epitomizes hard work because the ant sees the task set before him. The ant understands the problem and goes at it. The ant goes after it on its own initiative. She has the foresight not only to do that, but to live not for the moment, but for the future. Contrary to the it will never happen to me mentality, the ant prepares her bread in the summer, she gathers in time for the harvest in order to provide for the winter. And with this incredible observation, Solomon says to the sluggard, you need to learn from her. When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber. That's what the sluggard says. Now notice this, the sluggard here is portrayed as a procrastinator. The sluggard is not saying, I won't work. The sluggard is saying, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do tomorrow what could easily be done today. The sluggard fails to understand how marginal degrees of neglect can quickly lead to ruin. I'll just hit the alarm clock one more time. Does that sound familiar? If that's what your life looks like, Solomon says very quickly, poverty will come upon you. Just a little neglect here and there, marginal degrees of neglect, and you will know ruin. So this forceful rebuke on Solomon's part towards the sluggard is seeking to, to arouse him from his slumber and his laziness. He wants him to repent and set himself to work. And not only work, but hard, self-initiated labor. Now, with this well-known portion, I think one question that we need to ask of the text is why the concept of hard work? If indeed this passage is functioning to give us a strategy for relational excellence, how do we know what to stay away from and how do we know who to gravitate towards? Why this characteristic amongst many other commendable characteristics that he could have given us? He could have said to the son, uh, think about this quality in a friend and make sure you gravitate towards those people or another quality. And yet the one he lands upon is hard work. 
And I think the answer comes as we consider more broadly the theology of the book of Proverbs. If you read through Proverbs beginning to end, what you realize is that Proverbs is a book that very much emphasizes the responsibility of man. Proverbs is not the book that you would go to uh, find an extended treatment of, say, God's sovereignty, although Solomon does talk about it here and there. Proverbs is not the book that you'd maybe go to 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 get an in-depth treatment of how God is working in redemptive history to bring his plan of salvation to completion, although there are places where he speaks about such things. When you read through Proverbs, one conclusion that you have to make by the end is that there is work to be done. When you read through Proverbs and you think of your place and your responsibility in God's economy as one that would identify with his people, you have to conclude that there is a task that has been set before me. Over and over, Solomon gives you what it is to live wisely, and he focuses on your responsibility in the equation. He has worked out the world, and he has given you a blueprint to live. And then he says, you, reader, you have to live. You have to work this out. You have to strive for the skill and the wisdom that is given to you in this book. And that goes against the voice of today that would say, if you see excellence in anyone, it must be because of giftedness. So often, I hear young people especially look towards those who are excelling, and the only conclusion they can draw is that the reason they excel is because of some supernatural giftedness. It doesn't even feature into their thinking that maybe that person got there by hard work. The way in which you excel, the book of Proverbs teaches us, is that you graft and you work. We have a question in our home that my kids all know because I ask them so often. Maybe my son is, is shooting, how do you say this, shooting hoops, basketball hoops. See, I can do this. They're shooting basketball hoops. You're laughing at me. And he can't quite make it. And he's getting frustrated. And I'll say, Rory, how do you get good at something? And he knows the answer. And he says, you do it a lot. Or maybe my daughter is struggling with her times table and the next set that she's learning. And she's frustrated. And I'll say, Isla, how do you get good at something? And she says, you do it over and over. The way in which you excel is that you pursue wisdom over and over and over. You give yourself to the task that is set before you. You work hard. And so I think here in chapter six, again, introduction to the book, what Solomon is doing is setting up our expectations for what comes throughout the rest of this book. He's setting up our expectations. We need to acknowledge that hard work is a godly principle. And the way in which we excel in any area of life is to give ourselves to the task over and over and over again. And we as Christians are called to be excellent people. We are called to excel, to shine in society. And God wants us to know that the way you get there is through hard work. And so, within this portion on how to pick good friends, Solomon says to his son, think about the sluggard. Notice how in this second portion, the son is actually removed from the scenario. Back up in verse 1, Solomon paints a hypothetical situation with the son in the center of it. Well, not here. In this second scenario, he removes the son. He leaves the son out intentionally, and he just confronts directly the sluggard. 
And so the, the primary implication is not so much work hard, but more son. Do you see that man? Did you see the sluggard and, and what I said to him about the ant? Make sure you keep away from folks like that. Son, as you grow up and you understand that you will be influenced by someone, the inevitability of influence, you will be influenced by someone. As you pick your friends and you think about who it is that you want to influence your thinking and your worldview and your way of life, pursue the diligent. Observe who it is that knows how to get up and work. And when you find someone who leads themselves, who knows what it is to see the problem and to go after it, who knows what it is to toil and to strive and to labor, when you see that quality in someone, go be friends with them. Go hang out with them. Allow yourself to catch whatever it is that they have. Well, there's a third principle. Pursue the diligent, befriend your friends. Finally, Solomon says, keep away from the wicked. Avoid the wicked. Now, Solomon is very blunt here. He's very open. He says, verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man. He doesn't hide what he thinks of this man. But notice how he paints his picture. He says, the wicked man goes about with crooked speech. Twisted speech. There's something that's not quite right about his words. The, the wicked man, he says in verse 13, winks with his eye. He signals with his feet. He points with his finger. Can you see how subtle and deceptive is the wicked man? Externally, he's just very sly. He's just very cunning. He winks with his eyes so that most people just miss what happened. He points in a kind of indiscreet way with his finger. He accomplishes his purposes in a very cunning way. That is what it looks like on the outside. And as you think through the sun, if you think through the, the naive one, who's yet another character in the book of Proverbs, if you think through the vulnerable position that they are in, I would say that these young men would find the wicked man strangely attractive. There would be something about them. In the flesh, the son would say, I kind of want to hang out with this one. I mean, outwardly, he's not obnoxious. He's not outwardly blasphemous. He's not outwardly pursuing evil. There's something about him, and I can't quite put my finger on it, and I kind of want to be friends with him. I think that would be the way that the wicked man would have it. He wants to draw in the sun. But make no mistake, Solomon says, son, his heart, verse 14, is evil. For all of his cunning ways on the outside, his heart is evil, continually sowing discord. And then he says, drawing the connection between deed and destiny that Proverbs so often does. Deed leads to destiny. Verse 15, calamity will come upon him suddenly. Son, when you feel like you want to go and be friends with this one, you just need to remember that in a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. And then, as if to just 
seal the nails in the coffin, Solomon concludes, listen to what the Lord says. The Lord hates six things, no, seven. It's a poetic device that creates a sense of climax. Seven things, son, that the Lord hates. Be sure of these. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, false witness, and one who sows discord among his brothers, which really is the Lord's commentary on the wicked man. He looks outwardly so harmless. There's something that is kind of compelling about him. But the Lord, seeing all things, says his heart's wicked, and this is the end of his actions. And the Lord hates it. And Solomon, as strong as he knows how, is warning the son away from such. A warning the son away from the wicked. Learn to recognize these men, son, and keep away from them. Now, some have suggested something of a a progression within this passage. The son makes a hasty decision. He says, I'll be your backup. Not that wise a decision. Well, that's the the entrance point into more bad decisions. And before you know it, you've got a, a sluggard on your hand. And that leads to worse. And now you've got a wicked man. Maybe Solomon is painting out a storyline for us here from innocent son to wickedness, which raises the question, how do we keep away from this end? It raises the question for our children. How do we train our children to think about friendships? In 1944, C.S. Lewis addressed a group of young men on the issue of friendship. He spoke to a group of students at the University of London, and he spoke to them on the topic of friendships. The lecture, now referred to as the inner ring, is a very perceptive analysis of friendships. And I would recommend that you you read this lecture. C.S. Lewis says there is a desire in every man to be part of the inner circle, the inner ring. He says, wherever you go, young man, wherever you go in life, the office space, the workplace, in society, there's always going to be a perceived inner club. And he says, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside of it. There is a desire, C.S. Lewis says, that is so strong that it will make good men compromise in all manner of ways. There is a desire so strong that it will cause good men to forsake their true friendships in order to be included in the club. He perceives and he analyzes the situation so well, and then the conclusion of the lecture, he says to the young men, the antidote is that you would put your head down, you would work hard, and you would pursue real friendship. Now think about that. He says the antidote to this is that you would work hard and you would pursue real friendship. How do you keep yourself away from the end that is given to us here, the wicked man? How do you please the Lord in all of your relationships? What is it to pursue relational excellence? It really is a simple formula that Solomon gives us in chapter 6. It's the same formula that was hit upon in that lecture. You work hard and you pursue real friendships. 
Give yourself with all that you have to the task that is set before you. And as you seek how to do this and learn how to do that with your life, go towards people that you can see modeling it. Allow them to influence you. And then you pursue real friendships. Befriend your friends. Invest in relationships. Be relationally excellent. It is one of the most glorious ways that we have to put God's beauty on display, to operate relationally with each other with excellence and skill and wisdom. Now, where do you begin? I would suggest you begin where we always need to begin, and that is you begin with Jesus Christ. You begin by making sure that you can call Jesus your friend. You begin by thinking upon the one that gave up his life for his enemies. You study what that man requires of his friends. Consider what it is that he asks of you. Submit yourself to him, cast yourself upon him for the forgiveness of your sins so that you may call him Lord, Savior, and friend. And then... For the rest of your days, you pursue relational excellence. You work hard and you make real friends. Let's pray to close. Father, we are grateful for the blueprint that you give us in the book of Proverbs for living life skillfully. There is so much in this one book that is there to equip us to live well. May we not be neglectful of this book. And even tonight, as we think about the concepts of relationships, who it is that we would spend our time with, who it is that we would allow to influence us, who it is that we would seek to be mentored by, the principles that we would live our lives on, please help us. I do pray for anyone here this evening who does not know Christ as their saviour, as their friend, that you would quicken their spirits unto salvation that they would repent of their sin and turn to him. And for your people, the church, I ask that we would be bold and confident to step forward and pursue relationships in the way that Proverbs teaches us. May we not be sluggards. May we work hard. May we seek to be influenced by the industrious, the hard workers. And may we not be negligent in our relationships in a time when there is so much that happens apart from relationships, when we'll be tempted to believe that we could conduct friendships via a screen. I pray that we would be people, people, face to face, eye to eye, hour by hour, learning from each other in true friendship, and that it would be to the praise and glory of your name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. We've ended this series on a very positive note, a reading from C.S. Lewis on mankind's irresistible quest to become part of the inner circle. Lewis said this, It's a desire so strong it will cause good men to forsake their true friendships. How do we gravitate to true friendships? Pastor Paul closed this way, You begin by making sure you can call Jesus your friend. Let's focus on him who died out of love for a world which hated him. If you want to learn more about following Christ in friendship, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, 
timelesstruthtoday.org, select Broadcasts. There you'll find a treasury of audio archives, including this complete series, all free for the listening. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. We gather to worship the Lord Sundays at 10.30 a.m., and if you don't have a church to attend, come worship with us. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. I hope you'll join us on Monday for part one in a new series, Paul's Gospel and Ours, a study of Paul's testimony before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. I'm Matt Williams. Hope you have a great weekend, and thank you for listening.